Good morning, Cross United. It's so good to see you this morning. It's Pastor Danny here. I am so glad that you are watching this message online. And uh, in the midst of this really weird season, um, I've been asking God and I've been asking the Lord and this thinking about what our church needs the most in terms of teaching, in terms of preaching. What, 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 what do you and what do I need to hear more than any other thing? And and as, I, as I've reflected on this, I just keep coming back to one thing. And it sounds like the cliched Sunday school answer, but the reality is it's a cliche Sunday school answer because it's true and that what we need in this season is just Jesus. And, and I believe God kind of just gave me this sense that he knew what he was doing last summer when I was thinking and praying through what to teach our church in, in this coming year, 2019 into 2020. And he led us to study the gospel of John together. And I believe his spirit knew the way he was leading. Um, and he knew what was ahead. He knew what was going to happen. He knew this pandemic would be on the horizon, even though we had no idea it would be. And so I'm just going to trust that uh, even though we've taken a few weeks off, that jumping back into John is exactly what we need. I know it's what I need, and I'm, I'm trusting that God is going to use it in your heart and in your life. So a few weeks ago, we left off in John chapter 8, verse 12. And we left Jesus making this astounding claim. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again and said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this is just this astounding claim that Jesus has made, that he is light and life, something only God the creator can say. He's saying that anyone who follows me will have light and will have light. The light of life will, will, be, will be made alive again, will be given light in the midst of the darkness. We saw in that sermon, it's online or on the podcast stream if you want to check it out, that the world has a darkness problem, that we as people have a darkness problem, but that the darkness has a Jesus problem. And this claim that he is making um, in front of the people and in front of the religious leaders and the Pharisees um, is going to provoke the Pharisees now in John 8, 13 through 20, which will be our text this morning, to bring a formal legal challenge against Jesus. And in essence, what they're saying is, Jesus, what gives you the right to say what you're saying? Let's look at the word of God, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're, then we're going to just dive in and see what God has for us. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because I am not alone but I and the Father who sent me judge. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You know neither me nor my Father, Jesus says. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. He spoke these words by the treasury while he was teaching in the temple but no one seized him because his hour, his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. 
Lord, I just pray you would speak to us through your word, that you would edit me and help me in this moment to speak your word to your people through this technological medium of, of cameras and microphones and screens and internet streams. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be here with me right now and here wherever this person, this family is listening to this message. Lord Jesus, you're already there. You're already in that location. You're already in that time. You're there right now and you're waiting and you're going to meet us, I trust. You're going to meet us and you are going to speak by your spirit. Spirit, have freedom to say what you need to say through me, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The bottom line in this passage is that Jesus passes any test and every test with flying colors. The bottom line is that Jesus passes any test and every test with flying colors. The Pharisees bring this formal legal challenge against him here in verse 13. They say, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony isn't valid. And what they're saying is it's just a uh, a self-evident thing that anyone can say anything about themselves. Um, there, you know, there, there's a list. There's a whole Wikipedia page listing people who have claimed to be a reincarnation of Jesus Christ from the 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st centuries. There's just more people than you can even imagine who have claimed to be Jesus reincarnate on the earth. And what do we call those people? We call them crazy. Or we call them con men or women. They're either lying to us or they're nuts. C.S. Lewis a long time ago uh, said the same thing. He said that Jesus was either a con man, he was either a con man, he was crazy, or he was Christ. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord. This is all the Pharisees are saying. They're saying anyone can say anything about themselves. But your testimony isn't valid. All the more because uh, his testimony was was uh, based on one single witness. And in the Old Testament law, uh, the requirement was two witnesses or three witnesses. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus and other places, the requirement for someone's testimony to be valid was for there to be corroborating evidence from two or three witnesses. So the Pharisees, this is the charge. They're bringing this legal charge, this challenge to Jesus. And to this legal challenge, Jesus responds with a two-part defense in John 8, 14 through 18. He defends his witness or his testimony, and he defends his judgment. And both of these two aspects of his defense of himself have three parts to them. He, he first defends himself. Second, he defends his reasoning for his defense. And then third, he brings a counterclaim against the Pharisees. So he, he gives his defense. He gives the reason for his defense. And then he brings a countersuit against the Pharisees. So the first thing he defends here in John 8, 14, is he defends his witness. He says, even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true. So he said, I'm operating on a different plane than you are. 
Yes, it's true in the realm of human affairs that someone who says something about themselves is not sufficient. They don't have the authority. They don't have the credibility to make claims like I'm making. But I am not a normal, average human being. I can testify about myself and my testimony will be true. Jesus' word is all that he needs to give valid testimony, to witness for himself. He can take the stand in the courtroom the Pharisees are trying to create in this moment, and he can say a word and have it be sufficient. Why can he say that? Well, he gives us the reason in verse 14. Because I know where I came from and where I'm going. How can Jesus say this? How can Jesus be a person unlike every any other person who's ever lived who can make these crazy claims about themselves and we dismiss them as crackpots or con men? How can Jesus truly be Christ simply on the testimony of himself? Well, he says the reason is I know who I am. I know who I am. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Where did he come from? He came from heaven. He came from the Father. Great theologian uh, Augustine of Hippo uh, in North Africa in the 5th century explained that, that when it says that he was uh, came from the Father, it's return, uh, referring to what the Bible talks about and what theologians call eternal generation. That the Father eternally generates or gives life to his Son. Not that he creates the Son, but that the Trinity is the Father generating the Son and the Father and the Son eternally breathing out the Spirit without the passage of time, without passions or parts or divisions, without any sort of or, you know, one step to another. There's always Father, Son, and Spirit in this eternal Trinity of life and love. He says, I know where I came from. And from where I came, the Father has sent me into the world on a mission to save humanity, to save my people from their sin. I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. Where is he going? He's going to the cross. He's going to the tomb, and he's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus said, I know where I came from. I know where I'm going, to the cross, to the tomb, to heaven again. I'm returning to heaven. I'm I'm going to go back where I came from. His identity is the basis for his claim that he can testify about himself and say that he is in fact the light of the world. Third, he says in terms of his witness, he brings a countersuit, a counterclaim against the Pharisees. He says, but you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. So he's saying, they're saying, what gives you the right to say this? And he's saying, what gives you the right to question my right. You don't know where I came from. You don't know where I'm going. You have no idea who I am, is what he's saying. You have no idea who I am. You don't know that I am the eternal son with the Father and the Spirit. I am, I am God himself. You don't know where I came from. And you don't know where I'm going. You don't understand that the Messiah is not merely a conquering warrior, but he will be a crucified king. 
You don't know that I'm going up the hill of Calvary to die for the sins of my people. You don't know that I'm going to be put in the tomb. You don't know that I'll be raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and seated in my humanity and deity at the right hand of my Father. You don't know where I came from and you don't know where I'm going. This is a charge he's bringing against the Pharisees. They don't see with the eyes of revelation or illumination. They have a limited and a blinded perspective. They have no idea who he is. They have no idea that God himself, Yahweh, the great I am from Exodus 3, the great creator of Genesis 1, is standing in front of them saying, I am the light of the world. They have no idea who he is, where he came from, or where he's going. Instead, he says, and, he, and, and this is the pivot in his defense in verse 15. He says, you judge by human standards. You judge by human standards. This is the, this is the problem with their judgment. They're judging him according to the flesh. They're judging him according to his human nature. They're judging him according to the standards that we use for other people. But he doesn't submit to those standards because he transcends those standards. Because he's not merely a human. He's also God. They only see his humble origins from a backwater town, even according to Israelite standards. They, they only see that he's a, a, a laborer and he's not, not a trained religious scholar. They, they don't, all they see is what's right in front of them, but they don't see with the eyes of faith. Then he says, I don't judge anyone. Now, this is kind of interesting that he says this because um, there's a few times where judgment comes up in the gospel of John. So for example, in John 3, 17 and 18, uh, Jesus says that he wasn't sent for judgment, but for salvation. Judgment comes from unbelief while salvation comes from faith. In John 5, 19 through 30, he explains that the father doesn't judge, but has entrusted judgment to him. In fact, the son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing, John 5, 19. So he can only judge as he hears from the father, John 5, 30. Uh, theologians have understood this to refer to the fact that the father and the son share the same life, that the father eternally generates the son, as I've already said, the, the eternal receiving of life from the father. In 12, John 12, 47 through 48, he says he doesn't judge those who reject his word because his purpose in the world is salvation rather than judgment. Nevertheless, the word of Jesus will judge the person who rejects it on the eschatological end time last day. In, in John 16, 11, he says that the world, the, the ruler of the world has been judged. So, so all this to say, I know, I know that was a lot, but all this to say that this doesn't mean when he says, I don't judge anyone, he doesn't mean that he literally never brings judgment. What he means is two things. Um, and, and Augustine pointed this out 1,500 years ago. That, that he means, one, that he judges at a different time. That he will judge at the end. But secondly, he also means he judges with different standards. He judges with different standards. He doesn't judge with human judgment. And we see that's true because he goes to his second part of his defense. He's defended his testimony or his witness in verses 14 and 15. 
And now he's going to defend his judgment in verses 16 through 18. And if I do judge, my judgment is true. So he defends his testimony, but now the witness has in fact shown that he is the judge himself. He is the judge and the witness in this trial. And if he says, if my judge, my judgment, so I can witness to myself and I can judge myself and I can in fact judge you. Why? Why can I do that? Because it's not I alone who judge, verse 16, but I and the Father who sent me. So his claim is that his judgment is true if he judges. And his reason for that is that he is not judging alone, but the Father who is with him. He's not judging alone, but the Father is with him. This is a Trinitarian verse. This, this one little phrase, this clause, is full of the Trinity here. He says, I don't judge alone, but the Father is with me. Theologians have called this the doctrine of inseparable operations or, or work operations. Operation just means work. And inseparable meaning you know undivided. That, that the Father and the Son don't do different things. And the Spirit and the Father and Son, they, they don't do like the Father does one thing and the Son does one thing and the Spirit does another thing. And they kind of like are like teammates, but that they do the same work because they are one God. When he says here, I am not alone, but I am the Father who sent me, he, he guards against two errors when we think about who God is. One error is that God is one being with one person. Historically, this is called Sabellianism or modalism. That is that God has different modes or manifestations. That is, you know, he is the Father, Son, and Spirit, but that Father, Son, and Spirit are just one person. So sometimes he shows up as Father, sometimes he shows up as Son, sometimes he shows up as Spirit. This is the error or, or literally heresy of modalism or Sabellianism, that the, that the God is one being and one person, that Father, Son, and Spirit are just different manifestations. That, that's not what the Bible teaches because he says it's not I alone, but the Father's with me. There's two persons there. But also the, the, the other side, in contrast, is that yes, the Father and the Son are two persons, but the, the, that the Father is greater than the Son. That the Son is a lesser being and a different being than the Father, that the Father somehow created the Son in, 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 you know, way, way, way long time ago that the Father created the Son. This is the error of subordinationism or Arianism. That is that the Father created the Son, that the Son is a lesser being than the Father, that there are two persons but also two beings. So those are two errors we have to avoid when we talk about God and the Trinity. We have to avoid the error of saying that God is one being and one person, and we have to avoid the error of saying that God is multiple beings, two, three beings, and multiple persons. Instead, what the Bible teaches is the mystery of the Trinity, that God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he says here, I'm not judging alone, but the Father who sent me. Even in your law, verse 17, it says, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Verse 18, I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So he's saying that the Father sent me 
I'm not alone. So that I didn't leave where I was before when I came here. That I am both there as God and here as God and man. That God is omnipresent. He's always everywhere all of the time. So he says, the Father is with me. Though the Father is in heaven, the Father is also with me. And he tells Philip in chapter 14, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the Father sent me. And he sent me for purposes of salvation. He says, verse 18, I am the one who testifies about myself. And the Father sent me testifies about me. So he's countersuing the Pharisees yet again by saying, even in your law it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. So he's saying there are two persons, the Father and the Son, testifying to the identity of who Jesus Christ is. It's interesting here in verse 18. He says, I am the one who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me. Now, we've talked about this throughout our series in, in John, that that phrase, I am, the Greek is ego, I, ami, I am, is a very important phrase throughout the Gospel of John. Multiple times throughout John, uh, Jesus claims the divine name, which is from Exodus 3, where God says to Moses from the burning bush, I am who I am. But there are also times where Jesus uses it metaphorically or as a word picture to describe uh, who he is. So he says, I am the bread of life, or like we saw just before this in 8.12, I am the light of the world. And there are seven of these I am statements. So there's the absolute I am statements where he claims the name of God. And then there's the descriptive I am statements where he describes his character, which reveal his divine identity, but also something of his mission and, and his incarnation and all of these things. Here he says, literally, I am the one testifying about myself. So they, again, this is an allusion to all of these I am statements all throughout the Gospel of John. And it's a, it's a, it's a nod to his divine identity that he is God. And it's a, it's a nod to the, the authority he has as the God-man, the Messiah, the Christ, sent by the Father, who also testifies about him. Uh, it's important to note when, when it says the Father sent the Son, that, that this mission in history... Um, and I know I'm talking about Augustine a lot in this this sermon. That's because of he he was such an important theologian, especially in in the Gospel of John and, and the doctrine of the Trinity. And what what Augustine said is that the the sending of the Son reveals something about the eternal nature of God as a Trinity. So the Father sends the Son in time to become a man, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, to be buried and raised from the dead so that anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ will be forgiven their sin and given eternal life. The, the Father sends the Son because eternally the Father generates the Son, that the, the, that the Son and the Spirit are sent by the Father and it couldn't have been the other way around. Now I know that's a lot and that's pretty deep theologically. If you know if, if that's a little too much for you just just hang in because we're getting to something that I think is going to be really important for you to see in verse 19 as the Pharisees bring their cross-examination. What they do is they call the witness. Look at verse 19. Then they asked him, "Where is your father?" 
Where's your father? So you've got this witness. Where is he? Again, they're judging with human judgment. They're judging according to the flesh. They don't understand what he's saying, that his father is God the Father. And he says to them, You don't know me, verse 19, or my father. If you knew me, you would also know the Father. That's why he can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But you can come to the Father through me because if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That the Father and the Son are one being, yet distinct persons. So if you want to get to God, you have to go to Jesus. It's the only way. It's the only way. My favorite way to describe this, since we're in Florida, is uh, the Magic Kingdom. Now, we've been looking forward to going to the Magic Kingdom. Our kids have been saving up for it, and they closed it down because of the, of the pandemic. Um, so I'm not sure when we'll go again. But, but when you drive up World Drive in, in, the, in Walt Disney World, and you come to the gate of the Magic Kingdom, you realize that there is only one way in. You can drive, you can park, you can take a ferry to the front gate you can take a monorail to the front gate you can take a bus to the front gate you can walk to the front gate but when you get to that front gate that's the only way in now i know like you know employees cast members may come in a different way that's not the point i'm making the point is if you are a guest there's one way in and what we don't say to the magic kingdom is how unfair is it that you require us to go through the front narrow gate what we say is, if we have a ticket, is I'm glad I get to go and that there's any way in at all. God didn't have to invite you in, but he has. And it's not the question of why is there only a narrow gate to get through, through Christ. The, the issue is the graciousness and the kindness of God to offer us entry into his kingdom. And the, the marvel is that there's any way to get in at all. And if someone gave you a lifetime pass to the magic kingdom, you wouldn't complain about there being one narrow gate. You would be grateful for the gift. In the same way, God is inviting you to a, an eternal pass into his kingdom. And it's not that there's only one narrow way and that that's some sort of hindrance. It's that there is grace in that the invitation is open for all. If you knew me, you would know my father. Now look at what he says at verse 20. And this is, so, this is so powerful. This spoke to me this week as I was studying it. He says, it says, He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple. But no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. His hour there is referring to his crucifixion, his death on the cross, his betrayal, his, his scourging and his death where he bore the sins of the world. But it says he, no one seized him. Now, I just want you to think about this. Now, now Jesus is different than us because, because Jesus was in control of his destiny because he was God. So he, didn't, he wasn't betrayed like, like, like someone did something to him that he didn't know was, was happening. He wasn't blindsided. He gave himself up willingly to betrayal, to unjust trial, execution, and death. But what's interesting to note is that until the point where the hour had arrived, no one could touch him. 
Now, Jesus, like I said, is different than us because he controlled his end. And we don't control our end. And, and we're, 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 we're out of control, literally. We, we don't control the day of our death. We don't control the length of our life. We're seeing this in, in heartbreaking ways all over the place. But what we do know, what we do know is who controls the length of our life the day of our death, and our eternal destiny. That until God's purposes for us are done, that we are immortal and invincible. He controls our end. And notice what it says in verse 20. He was in the temple. Where was he? He was on the Pharisees' home turf. But even in on the home turf of, of, of those who were trying to, to assault him, to seize him, to arrest him, and to condemn him. He was in control of his destiny. And I'm going to tell you, even on the turf of the enemy, you are not at the mercy of the enemy. Even in dangerous places, even when you're afraid, even when it seems dangerous, you're not at the mercy of fate or probabilities or infection rates or death rates. You are at the mercy of the sovereign providential plan and purpose of God Almighty. And if your hour has not yet come, you will survive. You will live. You don't need to live in fear for yourself or for your family because you can trust the good and the kind plan and power of God. Because what God did is he sent his son to the cross and that hour did come. And he was betrayed by his friends. And he was arraigned by his enemies. He was tried and convicted, sentenced. And he ascended the hill of Calvary with the cross on his back. And they put nails in his wrists and in his ankles and he hung there until he died, bearing the sins of his people so that we would not have to live in sin and die in sin, separated from God, but we could live in Christ and in him and with God when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who passes any test and every test with flying colors. So I just want to I want to point you to a few things you might want to think about doing with this with this message. First, to ask God with childlike faith. You know, he rebukes the Pharisees, Jesus does, because they ask from a place of prosecution. But if you approach him with the faith of a child and you say like the man in the gospel said, I believe, help my unbelief. He's not going to rebuke you. He's going to embrace you and he's going to say, come here. Let me show you. Let me show you what I've got. Let me show you who I am. Let me show you what I can do. Trust, secondly, trust that Jesus is who he said he was and proved himself to be. Trust that he is who he said he is and was and will be forever. Three, look to the cross where Jesus was put on trial 
and he passed the test because ultimately the trial wasn't about those who put him on trial from a human perspective. The trial was about the purposes of God to save people from their sin. And he passed that test and he passed the test, every test before, after, and forever. The cross is the word of God over our lives and over our sin, that it is finished. And there's no one we have to impress or not, and nothing we have to prove and nothing we have to do that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe that though our life bore a crimson stain, he washed us white as snow. And the fourth point is, is to live in faith rather than fear. If you're a Christian, your life is hidden with Christ in God. No one can touch it. You have nothing to lose. God is yours and you are his. And he will give you the length of life and the length of health and the length of life and health for your family that he in his perfect purpose has designed. And one day he's going to call you home and it's going to be all the better. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the word of John about Jesus that we can study, hear, learn, believe, and respond to. Pray you give us faith. Give us hope. Give us love. To see Jesus, the one who passes any test and every test with flying colors, the one true and living God in human nature, crucified, buried, and risen again. In Jesus' name, amen.